0: Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. Probably about the time that this podcast airs, we will have my first Kendall single available, uh, obviously, on uh, Amazon and Kendall and so on and I'm very excited about it. It's something I've taught many times. It's something that has evolved in my life of working and consulting with leaders. Um, and, I, and I want to just talk to you about it for a few minutes because I think it's such a fascinating uh, topic. The, the, the title is uh, 10 Signs of a Leadership Crash. Let me just tell you a little bit about how this came about in my life. Um, almost all of you know that I was a pastor for about 20 years. And uh, during that experience, uh, I had an opportunity to work with leaders who had, quote-unquote, fallen. They might have been pastors who had gone immoral in some way. They might have been worship leaders who uh, made odd choices and, quote-unquote, fell, meaning that they couldn't stay in their positions of leadership. Um, they had a, you know, an hiatus. They had to go on vacation. They had to step out. They were under discipline, all of those phrases. Um, and then I worked with them for various reasons to help them gain strength, reclaim their marriage, reclaim their moral balance, and get back in leadership. It was just something that happened in the normal course of being pastor of a pretty good sized church in Nashville. Um, And then when I transitioned out of pastoring in 2002, uh, I found myself, largely as a result of my book on uh, George W. Bush, leaders began to come to me, and I I found myself in the middle of or consulting in a lot of leadership crashes. Um, Most of these you would have heard about from uh, Ted Hager to uh, some of the big political scandals in D.C. Part of it was that I'd been a pastor. Part of it was that I had spoken a lot about leadership and people around these fallen leaders knew it, um, et cetera. There are all kinds of reasons for my involvement. But what was interesting was I was often called in after the crash to help the leader restore, help the family heal, help the company rebuild, whatever it was, and and I I really enjoyed that role. I I, I really found uh gifts for it. Um, and there was a lot of good fruit, and it wasn't just me. Many times I was working with other consultants and and uh, people in the field, psychologists and what have you. But it was it was really it is really rewarding work. I continue to do it. What what began to change in my mind was that uh, when I was doing the debrief with those who were sitting on amongst the carnage and the and the ruins of what had been, um, I began to realize that to fix the crash after it's happened is not as valuable as understanding what causes the crash and uh, living differently so that the crash doesn't happen so I began to do what I call learning the lessons of the post-mortem, of the leadership crash post-mortem. leadership crash uh, I began to ask wives, uh, CFOs, secretaries, uh, boards, every kind of person around a leader who had crashed, uh, the questions. I began to analyze. I began to do the post-mortem. What caused this problem? Uh, what's the autopsy on this disaster? And I began to evolve about 10 core answers. Uh, every time I heard pretty much the same things. Yes, the, the circumstances would change. Once it was a pastor, another time it was a congressman, another time it was a, you know, a CEO of a, of, a, of a major corporation. Uh, a couple of times it was military. But, but the bottom line is that I began to hear, I began to realize that I was hearing the same 10 or so answers in every single situation. And the other thing that was interesting uh, was that I began to to hear also that people around the leader knew well in advance of the crash, not only that something was wrong, but but that a crash was imminent. In other words, they didn't just generally send something's different about Bob. They said, this is not going to end well. They might've only said it in their heads. In many cases, they said it to other people, and, uh, and that made me aware of the fact that if they had only been equipped with uh, tools of analysis, if they had only been uh, equipped with language with which to discuss this, approach this, approach the leader, so that it wasn't them just saying, well, I just sent something, you know, um, that they could have made a difference. So I began to really pay attention to this, and eventually I began to do many seminars in corporations, and churches. Uh, everywhere that leadership is exerted, nonprofits everywhere, um, about the 10 signs of a leadership crash. Now, I'm not saying this is the only 10 signs, but I've talked to a lot of consultants. I've uh, listened to a lot of them talk at conferences. Uh, We agree that there may be a dozen signs, but these are the 10 most important. Um, and time and time and time again, I've had this confirmed. And as I've begun to teach this, these, these 10 signs that, that anticipate a crash and, and the ways that people can change their behavior in advance, uh, it really has done a lot of good. So I'm very excited to have uh, written um, this Kindle single. And if you don't know what that is, you can pop online and find out what a Kindle single is. I wanted to make it brief. I wanted to make it easy to digest. I wanted to make it so that a, a CEO could digest it uh, on his iPad on a, on a flight. Or a housewife could uh, read it to see what's going on with her, her son, or her daughter, or her husband. Um, very without without a lot of time being invested. Let me give you a little bit of an example of uh, the kind of thing that I analyze in Ten Signs of Leadership Crash. Um, one of the things that we have heard over and over and over from the leader and from the people around the leader is that they were quote unquote out of season. Now that sounds mystical that that may not be scientifically verifiable you can't measure a season but in almost every crash i've ever dealt with and there have been oh i won't even estimate but dozens and dozens um almost every single one of them the leader and the and maybe his his or her spouse would say i was out of season i knew there was a moment when i should have left i knew Uh, that I was uh, not supposed to be in this field any longer. I knew... Um, that my team was not the right team. That I should have transitioned them. Uh, I knew that that secretary's time had come to an end. I knew. I knew. I knew. There was a season. There was something about the leader's life that was out of season, and they knew it. They should have retired. They should have resigned. They should have gone with another company. They should have stepped out. They should have. They knew they were supposed to be back with the kids in California, and they just were overambitious and stayed with the company in Virginia. I have heard variations on that story over and over and over and over. And so in the seminars that I do, and also in the single, I help leaders understand what does it mean to be out of season? I mean you you know when you're out of season, things that worked a year ago aren't working now, it doesn't feel the same when you walk in the door, uh, the team isn't as congealed, things aren't clicking as well, there's a there's a there's a timing thing, there's something wrong. It doesn't mean that the person's necessarily supposed to resign automatically. It does mean though that that they have to do what great leaders do, and that's pay attention to the seasons of their life. I don't mean, you know, college and middle age and old age and so on, retirement. I mean the seasons of leadership. One of the great arts of living is to discern the seasons of the different phases of your life. Your marriage goes through seasons. Your time with your children goes through seasons. Your professional life goes through seasons. And then, of course, your social life, your body, etc., 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 your financial life, This is critical. So that's one of the things I deal with. Another thing that I deal with uh, is bitterness. It's astonishing how many times a a moral crash that causes unbelievable devastation occurs because uh, people are uh, living in the results of defining episodes of bitterness. I'm not talking about the light wound I'm not talking about the occasional you know laceration that we all endure in high school college uh, marriage, what have you I'm talking about where there was a real blow early in life, whatever it was, episodes of sexual abuse, uh, real rejection from the kids in high school, uh, cruelty from the the gang at the at the at the sorority or the fraternity in college, you, you know the big wounding things rapes of course, criminal activity and That wound, that bitterness has continued. And so the best image of this is Richard Nixon. Think about it in terms of Richard Nixon. Uh, When Richard Nixon was in the middle of um, Watergate, he was uh, still processing wounds and bitterness about the way his family had been treated because they were Quakers in California. And and this this had been 40 or 50 years before. He literally in the middle of Watergate, he was on the floor, beating the floor with his fist and talking about how they treated his family. He was talking about something that had happened 40 years before he'd become an angry, bitter man. Uh, David Gergen said that we all have opportunities to be bitter. But Richard Nixon surrendered his soul to bitterness. And it became part of the motive force of his life. Vengeance, uh, getting back at them. I'll show them, that kind of thing. When you're hurt and you're bitter, you feel entitled. I, listen, I'll just drink what I want to drink. I'll sleep with who I want to sleep with. I'll, I'll, I'll take this money. I'm entitled. And that's what produces the crash. So bitterness is another example. It sounds simple in the telling. I can't tell you how many times bitterness has been the issue. And then, one other little practical thing that I talk about, for example, and I'm just giving you a sense of this single, um, is what I call the third world. Um, I don't mean that part of the world that's less developed than first and second world. I'm talking about um, the way that, particularly men, if they've got pressure at work and unhappiness at home, they'll create a third world. Sometimes it's a sort of healthy thing, like maybe the golf course or, or the basketball game with the guys and a beer afterwards. That's a, that's a sort of healthy third world where they go to get away from the pressures they perceive both at home and at work. But many times the third world uh, is an apartment in New York with uh, the girlfriend. Many times the third world is the porn um, the 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 porn experience or the strip club experience, um, the third world may be a place where they go to get completely wasted, uh, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Uh, most men will create a third world if home and work are unhappy because they've got to have some place where they feel like they're accepted and they belong and they're having some quote unquote fun. The best image of this is uh, Mr. President Clinton, uh, his wife would be in the in the White House residence. Uh, He felt, of course, great pressure being in the Oval Office. So what did he do? He met with an intern in the president's private office, which is literally between the residence and the Oval Office. What was going on? Unhappiness at home, unhappiness in the Oval Office. And so he found, quote unquote, relief in a third world. So these are just examples of the things that we talk about and I I urge you if you are a leader, and I know many of you are, pay attention to these types of syndromes in your own life and let me help you a bit. Get this single and if I can help your company, I can help your your tribe, if I can help your organization by coming and doing a seminar on that, if I can work it into my schedule, I certainly will. 10 signs of a leadership crash and you know what? In your life there may be more. Pay attention to it. It's an important part of being a leader. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox and CNN, and a blogger for a number of leading online news services. His groundbreaking books on faith and American society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Faith of Barack Obama, The Mormonizing of America, and the soon-to-be-released Lincoln's Battle with God. You can learn more about Stephen at www.mansfieldgroup.com and connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell for Chartwell Literary Group.